I went to college in the 1960s. All right, I'll give you a minute. She's how old? Yeah, I went to college in the 1960s. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to major in. I was doing some professional theater dance, and I thought I'd major in the arts. But I was very good in sports, so I thought I'd major in physical education. Then I couldn't decide between the arts or phys ed, arts or phys ed. And finally, one day, I said, what do I really want to go to college for? Well, it was the 1960s. I was a woman. I aspired to that degree that many women aspired to in the 1960s. Anybody know what that was called? What a smart crowd. For you young kids, that spells missus. Yeah, I want to go to college, meet the man of my dreams, get married, move to the suburbs, raise 1.2 children, and live happily ever after. Lo and behold, I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York. I met a young man who went to Cornell University. Ithaca's on one hill, Cornell's on the other hill. He came from a tiny, tiny little coal mining village in Pennsylvania called Trescow, outside of Hazleton in the Allentown area, and I came from New York City. You couldn't tell that, though, could you? As Tevye said in Fiddler on the Roof, a bird may love a fish, but where will they build a home together? I knew if I was too far from Bloomingdale's in New York, I'd have withdrawal symptoms. So we settled in Fairfield County, Connecticut, and life was blissful. My husband Gabe was recruited out of Cornell by every major name brand corporation he could think of. Why? He majored in metallurgical engineering. There weren't that many of them at the time. He was also captain of the football team, homecoming king, president of his class. He had offers from General Electric, Alcoa, DuPont, all these different organizations. But he knew I didn't want to live too far from my native New York City, so he took a job with Sikorsky Aircraft in Stratford, Connecticut. And we settled into our very first home. And life was perfect. Gabe now had the job that he always wanted to, and I was halfway to my life goal, which was to become a wife and mother. Truly, that was my only goal in life. Here's why. At the age of four, my dad left. I had no brothers and sisters. I was an only child. And don't get me wrong, I had a wonderful childhood. I look back on a childhood of ice skating at Rockefeller Center, dance classes at the New York City Ballet, trips to the Broadway Theater. I mean, Mom made sure my life was full. But I do remember thinking, someday when I grow up, I want to have that family unit that I never had as a young child. So I truly aspired to be a wife and mother. Well, I was halfway to my goal. Gabe had a great job. I was able to give up mine, and I was a stay-at-home wife, and I was enjoying that role. And about a year or two into his job, he comes home one day, and he looks very depressed. I said, what's the matter? He says, I think I'm in the wrong career. I said, why? He said, I'm an engineer. I sit at a desk all day long. I'm a people person. I think I should be in sales. I said, that's a great idea. Go for it. He said, well, I've got the security of Sikorsky. I've been watching this new company. It's growing fast. They're increasing their sales force, but I don't know if they'll make it. I said, just follow your dreams. So he left the security of Sikorsky to work for this fledgling company called IBM. (laughs) So he's in sales with IBM. He's doing quite well. We decide it's time to start a family. Sure enough, I get pregnant. I give birth to my son, Jason, and life is perfect. Gabe has the job of his dreams. I've reached my goal of being a wife and mother. Two years old, Gabe comes home from work, looks at me, says, now you look depressed. What is it? Maybe it's postpartum blues, two years delayed. (laughs) He said, well, you used to be a dancer. Go take a dance class. I said, oh, you know that little voice we have? The one that says, a dance class? You're too old. You're out of shape. You're a mother. You have no time. Isn't that great? That stuff we store up there just pops out when we need an excuse. Well, he encouraged me so, and I went out the next day, and I took one dance class. No, I took five. If one is good, five is better. Look at me. I love excess. (laughs) I danced all day. I dragged my body home at 6 o'clock at night. Gabe called me from work. He said, how was your day? I said, my day was absolutely wonderful. He said, well, I can't wait to hear about it, but they promoted my boss. We've all gone out for a couple of drinks. Wait up for me. I said, fine. 
So I looked over at the clock. It was only 7 o'clock at night. I figured, I'll put Jason to bed. I'm going to take a long, hot bath. Every muscle in my body was aching. I relax when I get out of the tub. I do some things around the house just to pass the time until Gabe comes home. I check the clock. It's 10 o'clock at night. He's still not home. But I'm so excited to tell him about my day. So I'll lay down and I'll take a little nap. And I fall into a coma-like sleep from all my exercise. I'm in this really heavy sleep when all of a sudden I'm awakened by a strange noise. And I'm not quite sure what the noise is, so I I squint over at the clock. It looks like it's 2 in the morning, 2 in the morning. What's the noise? What's the noise? Oh, it's pounding at my front door. And I figured Gabe probably forgot his keys, and I'm so excited to tell him about my day. So I jump out of bed. I go running downstairs with all my excitement. I open the front door to the house, and I was faced by a state trooper holding my husband's wallet and his wedding band, and telling me at the age of 29 he was killed in a car accident. I was a 29-year-old widow with a two-year-old child. I had no job, not a mortgage, and I had very little life insurance. Nobody ever told me you could die at 29. You died when you got sick died when you got old. You didn't die when you had your whole life ahead of you. State troopers stood in front of me and said, is there someone we could bring over to be with you? I don't know why God always calls at two in the morning. I said, well, my mom and dad live in this condominium development, but my dad's got a heart condition. I wouldn't want to share this kind of news with him in the middle of the night. What, what about your husband's parents? We should notify them about the loss of their son. I said, my mother-in-law lost her husband last month to an unexpected heart attack. How do I now tell her she's also lost her son? There must be someone. Well, our best friends, Kathy and Tony, they live a couple doors down, so they left me to get Kathy and Tony. Tony couldn't handle the news. He buried his head under his pillow. Kathy came over, and they left. And Kathy and I stood there in the middle of my living room with this horrific news at 2 in the morning, not know who to call, what to do. We were so young. And for whatever reason to this day, I don't know why, we sat down and we started reminiscing. Reminiscing about the fact that we're all in our young 20s and we were saving our money for our first homes. Reminiscing about the fact we're all having our firstborns at the same time. Kathy and I talked through the night. And I only remember one particular thing about that night. And that was contemplating suicide. See, I was always brought up to believe that I was going to be a wife and mother. And for the second time in my life, that dream was stolen from me. Suicide. Well, I guess God had other plans for me. 6 a.m., a little miracle happened. My two-year-old woke up. There was my reality staring me in my face. There was really no more time for self-pity. The news broke. It was big news in Connecticut where we lived. It was now an executive with IBM, so it hit newspaper, radio, television, headlines. People started streaming into my house one after another, and they'd all ask the same question. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? I don't know. What can I do? I was a dancer. I was a gym teacher. We used to be a dancer, go out and teach dance. Well, I wasn't a teacher. I was a performer. I don't know how to teach. Oh, come on, it can't be that hard. I'll hire you. Okay, I'll try. Someone else came over the house and said, you're a great cook. You love to cook. Why don't you start a catering business? Business? I don't know anything about business. Oh, come on, I'll hire you. It's not that hard. Okay, I'll try. Well, before you know it, the media picked up on it. Widow juggles four careers. Women in the 60s didn't have one. I had four. I was even belly dancing on the side. Oh, I hate to admit that. Ooh. I wasn't really good at it. My son Jason used to stand behind me and jiggle the furniture to make it look like I was moving. (laughs) 
but I became a media sensation. Everybody wanted to interview it. How did you do it? How did you do it? I had absolutely no idea how I did it. And then one day, that old cliche, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I quote from a lot of famous people in all my speeches, but let me quote you today one from one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, Whitney Houston, who said in a very poignant song, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. You see, if I fail or if I succeed, at least I've lived as I believe. Because no matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. I found the greatest love of all happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside me. That's where our answers are, folks. I found that out at a very young age. The God within, the love within, that's where the answers are. And that was the time of my life where I I created a vision, a future for Jason and me. And I held on to that vision. And that vision manifested itself because I believe I could have been a victim of circumstances. It's so easy for all of us to do, but I was determined to not. I was determined to choose my future. We have eight wonderful spiritual practices here at Bodhi. And one of them is visioning a process by which we train ourselves to hear, feel, see, and catch God's plan for all aspects of our lives. That's what I did at that time, and it was going to set the stage for the way I would live the rest of my life. How many of you have volunteered? Raise your hand if you volunteer. Excellent. Volunteerism is one of my core values. I'm passionate about it. I look for a major volunteer activity every year and a couple little ones as time and schedule allows. I moved to Chicago 15 years ago from the East Coast. Didn't know anybody here, didn't know where I was even moving to. So I certainly didn't know what I was going to volunteer for, but I thought if the student was ready, the... About six months after moving here, I read about an event, the Avon Breast Cancer Walk. Some of you may be familiar with it. I signed up to walk 60 miles in two and a half days from Kenosha, Wisconsin to downtown Chicago. You're looking at me like, why would you do that? (laughs) I had four really good reasons. Number one, I just moved to the Midwest. I had no clue where the Midwest was. Folks, I'm sorry to tell you this. When you live on the East Coast, we know there's a West Coast. We kind of forget there's anything in between. So I thought if I walk from Wisconsin to Chicago, I could see a couple cities and towns along the way, know where I was living. Second reason, they anticipated 4,000 walkers. I didn't know anyone in Chicago. I thought I could make some friends, get a date if I was lucky. Third reason, I owned a health club. It was one of my nine businesses. I was always in the fitness industry. I loved to challenge myself physically, and I'd never walked 60 miles. And lastly, and most important, my best friend, Sherry LeBed Davis, is a breast cancer survivor. So I thought I could raise the money and walk in her honor. And had all the components being the right volunteer activity for me. Here's what I didn't know. My idea of the great outdoors, the distance from the limo to the hotel lobby. I was kind of like Goldie Hawn and Private Benjamin. Remember that movie? They gave her her army fatigue. She said, does this come in any other color? (laughs) That would have been me. This New York City gal had never really shopped in an Army-Navy store, bought things like backpacks, canteens, pup tents, just not in my vernacular, but I was up for the challenge. The first day we walked, 17 miles in the rain. Not a good hair day, Pat. We got into base camp at night. I was seriously questioning my sanity. Why was I doing this? I took a shower in a truck. I brushed my teeth in a freestanding sink in a parking lot. I slept in a pup tent so little you had to get dressed lying down, using a flashlight, make sure you're putting your underwear on the right end. Why was I doing this? But the next day, I got my answer. 
They got us up at 4 a.m., not a time I usually like to get up, but they wanted us to hit the road at 5 when the sun was coming up. And at 5 a.m. when we started that walk, there was my answer. There were people on the front lawns of their homes sitting in beach chairs with banners that they had made that said, thank you for doing this for my mother, for my sister, for my brother. When I saw those people out there at 5 a.m., I knew I was doing it. They didn't have a banner and a beach chair. They were out there in their robe and slippers, pajamas, just to wave us, say thank you. Cars drove by. They couldn't get the window down fast enough to throw a hand out and yell, thank you, everywhere we walked. And then the little kids, the little kids who set up their lemonade stand and baked us chocolate chip cookies and made us homemade cards. And I collected these cards. They were so special. This one said, thank you for walking for all of us. We're so proud of you because you're a lifesaver with a little lifesaver candy attached to it. This one said, you're on a roll, girl. Go, girl. It had a Tootsie Roll that I ate. (laughs) As I collected these cards, I thought, how great are these parents by knowing what they're doing for their children, by having them volunteer at such a young age. They're fostering their self-esteem. They're creating a core value of volunteerism. How great are these parents? We walked 22 miles that day in the hot, blazing sun. I was tired. I was dirty. I was blistered. I had rashes I'd never seen before, and I dragged my body into base camp at night, and 600 volunteers had pitched our tents for us and cooked us a hot meal. And I witnessed kindness at a level that I'd never experienced before in my life. You see, when you volunteer, you feel so good about yourself that you're naturally kind to others. But the last day was truly the most inspiring. They wanted us to finish together. You can imagine 4,000 walkers. We had young, we had old, we had physically challenged. We had every shape, every size, every ethnicity. We even had breast cancer survivors making the walk. So everybody spread out at their own pace, two and a half days, 60 miles. So they created two areas. They created a holding area, and one mile away was the closing ceremony area. When you got to that holding area at 12 noon, you were done. Collapse on the grass, take a nap. Eat your 100th granola bar. (laughs) Network with another person. And by 12 noon, we were all assembled. And they gave out T-shirts. They gave out blue T-shirts to the several thousand walkers making the walk. They gave out white T-shirts to the 600 volunteers. Pink T-shirts to the 200 breast cancer survivors also making the walk. And they asked us to line up accordingly. And would we walk the final mile together along the Chicago lakefront, holding hands in complete silence in honor of those We'd been lost to this disease. And there wasn't a dry eye on this walk. Could you imagine the deafening silence of 4,000 people walking and the tens of thousands that lined the Chicago lakefront? Not a word. I particularly remember the man who walked in front of me. I stared at the back of his T-shirt for that one mile as I walked, and on the back of his T-shirt was a photograph of his mother. And underneath it, it said simply, for her. There was not a dry eye on this walk. As we approached the closing ceremony area, we'd been asked to invite our friends and family to meet and greet us. There must have been about 10,000 people waiting for us, and the roar that erupted, the cheer that contrasted against that silence will be a moment that will live in my heart and soul forever. And in that moment, I felt like they were cheering just for me. 
Because that's how special you feel when you volunteer. That's how special you feel when you step outside of yourself for a cause greater than you. Or you know in your own way that you've touched a life of someone you know, but you don't know. You know you've done something bigger than who you are. We have another spiritual practice here at Bodhi. And it's the one we call sacred service. The giving of ourselves in sacred service without any expectation of recognition or getting something in return. It quiets the ego and creates a field of oneness and belonging that heals our hearts and minds. We have eight wonderful spiritual practices. This is a card, and I have one of these cards for all of you today. You can go down into Fellowship Hall and pick one up afterwards. You can carry it with you every day. You can start your day with it. You can end your day with it. It's a beautiful thing to inspire you on a daily basis. I know it has for me. I, I love quotes. I've collected quotes my entire life. And, and, you know, and the funny thing about quotes is my son, could you imagine a son growing up and every time he brings his mother some kind of event, the girl he likes at school or the teacher doesn't like, mom has a quote for it. <laughs> so every time that Jason would come home with that, and one day I was packing to give a trip and Jason was standing on the side and he watched me and as he was watching me, I could tell something was striking him funny because he had this laughter. His chest was kind of going up and down. And he looks over at me as I'm packing to go on a speech and he said, mom, He said, Mom, do people really pay to hear you speak? I said, yes. With that, he kind of sauntered, you know, that cocky teenage walk over the kitchen table, reaches in his pocket, takes out 10 bucks, slaps in front of me, says, how long will you shut up for? (laughs) He says, you're always picking on me in your speeches. Why did you even have me? I said, I didn't know it would be you. (laughs) Auntie Mame said in the Broadway show, life is a banquet, and most poor son-of-a-guns are starving to death. I ask you today, when are you going to feast at the table of life? Do the things you want to do. You know, we all live on that little island. It's called the Someday Isle. Someday I'll do this, and someday I'll do that. When the kids grow up, and I, I lose the weight, and I get the money, and change the jobs, change the spouse, whatever it is, we're all waiting for that Someday Isle. Well, on 9-11, people got off their Someday Isle, and our world changed forever. And on February 28th, I got off my Sunday aisle because my world changed forever. So when I go around the world giving my presentations, the whole goal of it is to inspire people to not wait for those incidents in our lives because we have a choice. Everything we have in our life is a choice. And the choice about volunteerism is so passionate that I found a, one of my great quotes. Oh, by the way, I have so many great quotes. So Jason one day said to me, Mom, why don't you just put those all in a book? So I put a book together called Mickey Mouth. Quotations I wish I'd said, and some I really did say. And one of my favorite quotes, as it applies to what I've shared with you today, is by a gentleman, and I apologize if anyone here is of Indian descent as I butcher this name, Rabindranath Tagore. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. I want to end this presentation with music, because music has been a big part of my life. And in ending with music, I want to remind you of our eight spiritual practices. I won't read them all to you, but I'll tell you what they are. Affirmative prayer, sacred service, visioning, gratitude, forgiveness, meditation, spirit-centered leadership, giving, and receiving. 
I hope in the time I've spent with you today, the short time, I was able to inspire some of those things in all of you. So I end with this music. I'm not Tiffany. I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. <laughs> I've had the time of my life, Bodhi. And no, I've never felt this way before. It is such an honor for me to speak to this congregation today. Thank you for inviting me. I honor the uniqueness in every single one of you. Truly, I do. Thank you very much. You've been a great honor. give it to you. So wait a second. One line. I love, I love alliteration. I said, I want all of you, after I told you the volunteer story, to share your time, your talent, your treasure. You have time, give it to Bodhi. You have talent, share it. You have money, that's treasure. Spend it. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so let us take this time to speak a prayer. I invite you to close your eyes if you would. Oh, and take a deep breath. We use the power of breath to loosen that which has been made tight in our being. So I invite you to take another deep and conscious breath. And it is here that we stand, we sit, we be in the recognition of the infinite. the all-knowing, all-powerful presence of good. The perfect presence of love, of joy, of peace, of freedom. Knowing that that is the very essence, the very nature of who and what we are. That we are one with this infinite power and presence, with this infinite and vast universe. knowing that each of us have been divinely appointed exactly where we are. And so it is in this knowing that I claim here and now a new opening, a new beginning for our greatest and highest self to be revealed. that we take the invitation this day to rest easy in the knowing that the infinite support of good, the ever-present nature of spirit is always in us and as us. So we lay down any fears, any concerns, any small ways of being and allow the Holy Spirit of life to have its way as us. Very grateful for this knowing, very grateful for the recognition that there is one power and presence. It is the infinite and eternal that breathes us. very grateful for the knowing that this is the truth and the essence of our being. 
release this word knowing it is absolutely done. And together we say, and so it is. <laughs>